Hello, everybody, and welcome to Floor Fight, the Post Rider's new serialized podcast in which each season we assemble a politics bracket and pit our contestants against each other to crown the ultimate winner. I'm your host and your announcer, Michael Avito. Thanks, announcer Mike. I am your other host and your floor manager, Lars Emerson. Welcome to the podcast and to the exciting brawl we have before us. We have 56 entries and 8 spots open with 16 hoping to play in at the bottom seeds. Those 72 contestants are losing presidential candidates. That's right, it's every single person who has come second in one of the 56 competitive United States presidential elections and 16 of the top 3rd and 4th place finishers. And over the course of this season of Floor Fight, we will be pitting them against each other to determine the most important question there is. Who was the best president we never had? This time we're going to win. We're in a race. We're going to win this. We will wage a winning campaign in every region of this country. And then we will win. Let there be no doubt, my friends. We're going to win this election. We're fighting sure that we win. Help me become the next president of the United States. Here's how this is going to work. All candidates have been seated based on their percentage of the popular vote. Samuel Tilden, for example, our top number one seed, received 50.9% of the popular vote. But of course he lost the Electoral College, so he is the losing candidate with the largest vote share, and therefore our top seed. As we go through each match-off, we're going to introduce the candidate, the year, their seed, who they were bested by, and give you some context about each election. Then Mike and I will debate the merits of each before crowning the round's champion. If for some reason we cannot agree, we will literally flip a coin because that's how ties are settled in so many local elections across this great nation of ours. Everybody clear? Back to you, Mike. Thanks, Lars, and <laughs> to you, the listener. Yes, you! can follow along with our live updating bracket on our website. Go to thepostrider.com slash floorfight to see the seeds, victors, upcoming matches, and follow along with us each step of the way. So for now, without further ado, let's dive into our playing round. All right. <laughs> I, I didn't have something catchy to say there, but let's dive <laughs> right in. So yes. our first playing round, Mike, I'm, mm. I'm excited to give you this round of... James B. Weaver is a 16 seed, and he'll be playing in against Ross Perot in 1996. Yes. Uh, I'm going to start and tell you a little bit about Weaver. Okay. So, James B. Weaver, he was a populist candidate who came from Iowa and ran in the election of 1892. In that election, he got 8.5% of the vote, and he actually carried five states. Uh, but he lost to Grover Cleveland in Grover Cleveland's revenge tour against President Benjamin Harrison. Uh, I would say the main issues of that election were the McKinley tariff, uh, voting rights in the South. Um, but Weaver was like a former congressman and he wanted a graduated income tax, public ownership of many industries, and our unlimited silver coinage. <laughs> <laughs> I this is like a total aside and very off track, but I love candidates from like the eighteen nineties era because that whole like gold silver coinage issue just like it's so whimsical. It cracks me up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we have like all these debates about civil rights and like climate change and back then they were like, Arr, this gold needs to be worth sixteen <laughs> silver pieces and I'd rather die than not have it be so uh, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Tell us about and, Ross and then they wrote the Wizard of Oz about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just uh, tell us about Ross Perot in 1996. Yeah, so H. Ross Perot, uh, he, um, this was his second run of the presidency. He's just a billionaire from Texas. Uh, uh, I guess you would say a technology billionaire, but not, not in the Elon Musk sense, more in the IBM sense. Um, and he was actually running, in 1992, his, his last run, he had run as an independent. But this year, he ran under the Reform Party, which was a third party that he formed. And he actually did worse than he did in 92. He only won 8.4% of the vote, uh, about a little over 8 million votes uh, total. And that was good for absolutely zero electoral votes. Um, 96, of course, he lost to Bill Clinton and came in third behind Republican Bob Dole. Uh, the issues in that election, you know, it was a lot of stuff about the economy and fiscal policy, about taxation, uh, deficits, 
whether or not to cut um, spending on certain programs like Social Security, and Medicare, and Ross Perot, uh, you know, his, his big his big hobby horse was NAFTA, which was obviously signed to Bill Clinton's first term, and sort of his kickoff, uh, if you would, to his sort of second time to be president, actually kind of began in 1993 when he had a televised debate against Al Gore about uh, NAFTA. And I think really the only thing you need to know about that televised debate is that uh, at the end of it, uh, more people were in favor of NAFTA than were against it, <laughs> which did not help Ross Perot's chances in 1996. Interesting. I, uh, I did not know that. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's pit them against each other, Mike. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I hate Ross Perot. <laughs> I love NAFTA with a passion, and I like dislike free trade panicking people do i love populists no but ross perot was sort of a populist he was a populist he was a different kind of it's interesting how like the definition of populist changed in like a hundred years to be like somebody who wants to nationalize the railroads to somebody (laughs) who thinks we should have like a flat tax and like become an isolationist country um Uh, yeah yeah um I don't know. I, 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 my inclination is to go with Weaver on this one. I, I, I just think, like, given his time, like, all of the issues he embraced other than the silver thing have, like, more or less sort of come to fruition, right? It's like he was right about the income tax. Maybe mm-hmm. he wasn't right about public ownership, but, like, Pro was so wrong in the other direction. Yeah. I, I would agree. And, you know, as we, I think we feel like we've touched on this in other podcasts, too. It's like, at least Weaver had some government experience, you know, he wasn't uh, just a very rich guy who had time on his hands. So, yeah, I'm also inclined to go with Weaver. Like, I I just think that Perot is maybe a little bit of a one-trick pony, and I don't don't see him having a very stable presidency. Um, I guess Weaver probably wouldn't either, Um, but... Yeah, but you know. lose NAFTA with Perot as president, and with Weaver at least, like, he's not pushing for anything, like, I don't know, as cataclysmic. Right, yeah. I don't know. Are we giving it to Weaver? I, I think I think we are. Well, we'll get to see if Perot in 92 is a better president. He'll, yes. he'll be up later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's move to the next round. These are both 15 seeds. We have John C. Breckenridge versus Robert M. LaFollette. Uh, I'll tell you about Breckenridge. So he was a Southern Democrat, and he was vice president under President Buchanan at the time of the 1860 election, which is the election which he ran. He got 18% of the vote, but he lost, of course, to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the story behind that, and we're going to unpack this with another candidate in the play-ins too, is... Uh, basically, the Democratic Party split in two parts in this election. It kind of split in three. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, there was Stephen Douglas in the north, and then there was the even more racist ones in the south. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is, I don't know. Like, Douglas was, like, slightly more of a, like, uh, gradualist. Or, like, hey, let each state decide. But Reckonridge mm-hmm. was like, ah, I'm racist. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, which are both racist, but like Breckenridge was worse, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, he did get a seat in the Senate, Breckenridge that is, representing Kentucky, but he uh, was expelled from the Senate a few months later because he joined the Confederacy less than a year after the election and would later be their Secretary of War. So that is the candidate I give you for this round. <laughs> Tell All us right. about La Follette. <laughs> yes, Robert M. La Follette was a senator from Wisconsin. Uh, he was elected to the Senate as a Republican, but he ran for president as a member of the Progressive Party um, against Calvin Coolidge, uh, who ended up winning, and John W. Davis, who was a Democrat who lost, came in second. Uh, La Follette uh, came in third. He won 16.6% of the popular vote, and he actually won his home state of Wisconsin, good for 13 electoral votes. So La Follette, very interesting. So 1924 is viewed as like the high point of American conservatism because both Coolidge and Davis were considered conservatives. Mm. And uh, La Follette's candidacy was, La Follette had been like a very progressive Republican for a long time. He actually uh, ran in a primary against, well, they didn't really have primaries back then, but he ran for the nomination against William Howard Taft in 1912. 
um, and had apparently briefly considered like a unity ticket with William Jennings Bryan. But so this isn't really the progressive party of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, right? It's more of like a coalition of labor unionists, socialists, and like farmer groups. Hmm. And like La Follette was very, very progressive slash left leaning. Like he actually was pro Bolshevik before he visited the Soviet Union. And I was like, actually, you know what? This is not uh, this is not like a great state of affairs here. So maybe I'm not a, a Bolshevik anymore. But yeah, he his his stated goal was to break the combined power of the private monopoly system over the political and economic life of the American people. And he kind of he, he tried to split the difference, right? The the sort of like very far left members of his coalition thought he wanted to bring down the entire capitalist economy, whereas the more moderate members of his coalition thought like, oh, he just wants to be another trust buster. He supported government ownership of railroads and electric utilities, cheap credit for farmers. He wanted to outlaw child labor. He wanted to pass legislation to strengthen labor unions, protect civil liberties, and he was against American expansion into Latin America. And he also wanted to pass, I think that lingered on for a long time, but a what was called like a war referendum. So rather than having uh, the Congress declare war, he wanted to be set to a referendum, right? And the people would vote on whether or not to go to war. That is he a even, bad he, idea. <laughs> he even wanted to nationalize cigarette factories. And actually the Republicans were, were, were more worried about him winning than they were about the Democrat Charles Davis winning. Huh. So yeah, that's Robert La Follette. He did die in 1925. Yeah, he so, dies like a year after, right? Yeah, he dies like a year after the election. Um, he, he was, I mean, old for a politician at the time. He was like 69. I, I appreciate Jack Nance modeling his Eraserhead character after yes, his he, hair. He, he, he has some <laughs> wild hair, Robert M. La Follette. But he was like the... He basically started a political dynasty. Like his son would become senator. He had, There's lots of La Follettes in Wisconsin in government in history. Yeah. So yeah, that that's Bobby L. F. Robert M. Laughlin Jr. All right. So this is why the play-ins are, you know, kind of entertaining because we got this super racist guy who literally <laughs> left the United States uh, as soon as the Civil War started and joined the Confederacy and La Follette, who is, you know, would I vote for him given a choice between a more normal candidate and him? Nah, he seems a little seems a little out there and he died that doesn't work in his favor but um no. i think we gotta i i definitely gotta go for the not racist guy yes i would say <laughs> so yeah we uh and you know for our listeners who are worried we're not giving them enough debate don't worry like you'll see la Follette next time this is more a yeah. debate for why it should not be breckenridge <laughs> yes yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. um all right let's move to the next round so uh these are 16 seeds again we have William Crawford versus Ralph Nader. Mm. Uh, so I'll start with Crawford. Uh, he was a Democratic Republican from Georgia. Uh, this was in the election of 1824. But before that, he was the Secretary of the Treasury for Madison and Monroe and also Secretary of War for Madison. He ran for president uh, in 1824 against John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, and Henry Clay in the infamous uh election that ended the era of good feelings he got like a stroke the year before the election but like presidents madison and thomas jefferson still supported him um and he won 11 percent of the vote but no candidate got a majority of electoral votes and the house of representatives chose controversially to uh make adams the president in an election that was quite controversial and we'll talk a little bit more about it uh, later in this round, but uh, Crawford was certainly experienced, but he did, like many wealthy Georgia politicians at the time, have a certain problem <laughs> with owning people. Uh, that's an <laughs> isn't issue. It, isn't it fun to compare apples and oranges, Mike? <laughs> it is. It's literally my favorite thing to do. That's why I love the Oscars so much. Yeah. So tell us about uh, Ralph Nader. <laughs> did he, like, own slaves or anything? Uh, no, he did not. Ralph Nader was a consumer advocate and or consumer protection advocate and activist from Connecticut. Uh, he ran. He's run for president a few times, but in 2000 he had his best performance when he ran as the candidate of the Green Party. He ran because he said there was a crisis of democracy happening in the country. He only received 2.74% of the vote, which won him no states and no electoral votes. But it was good enough to perhaps influenced the result in certain very close days in that election, specifically Florida, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with the Bush v. Gore decision where there were some uh, recount shenanigans in that state. 
That led to Bush winning the election by just over 500 votes. Yeah, so he, he Nader, again, I, I feel it's funny how I'm getting all of like the very left wing ones and you're getting all of the like slavery guys. But but uh, Nader was, you know, very much a, a left liberal, if you will. He was endorsed by the California Nurses Association, the United Electrical Workers. He was big on uh, campaign finance reform, voter fraud as an ending voter fraud, environmental justice, universal health care, affordable housing, free education through college actually including college, rather. You know, workers' rights, increasing the minimum wage, installing a living wage, exonerating certain drug-related uh, prisoners, legalizing hemp, uh, th- and, and of course, same-sex marriage, which was a much more contentious issue in 2000 than it is now. It's very interesting. Basically, a big theme in his campaign was that he was really running against Al Gore more than he was running against George W. Bush. He had thought the Democrats had moved too right in the Clinton years, and actually said that he would prefer Bush to win over Gore because it would force the Democrats to reassess their positions and probably act as a spark that would mobilize the left. People need to um, stop saying stuff like that. Yes. <laughs> but that upset so many people that even like the like the, the head of the Sierra Club wrote him a letter and was like, what are you doing? This is not what we signed up for. Right. So, yeah, that is uh, that's Ralph Nader. Yeah, so pitting these two together, this I feel like is an actual sort of debate, right? Is you have pretty big consequences no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. Nader, if he is somehow elected president by magic in the year of 2000, do we want Ralph Nader as the president who faces 9-11? Yeah. Whereas Crawford is like, oh, Nader also has no political experience. Crawford is actually like incredibly experienced. Yeah, he mm-hmm. owns slaves and we do, you know, have to consider that but we're also the winner of this election was john quincy adams and the result of this led to andrew jackson becoming president Mm -hmm. eventually and adams is not like a very good president Mm -hmm. i think you could make a case that crawford would have been a much better president and possibly have stemmed the tide of some of the jacksonian (laughs) waves crashing into america at this time you know what i mean yeah i know i see what you mean it is tough it's 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 tricky because Nader didn't actually... I guess the question is how much do we want to wait him in having a stroke? <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. He did have a stroke the year before. I guess I should check when he died. He died in 1834. So he had a, he had a good 10 more years. I don't know, man. It's, it's kind of... T- I mean, he served as a judge after, after this election. It, it's just sort of tough, right? It's, it's, can we make a compelling case for why Nader would be a good president? Because I'm sort of making a compelling case that Crawford would have been ultimately better than Adams and then Jackson. Yeah, I'm reading now Crawford was also like appointed to the Georgia State Superior Court after the election. So I guess he was, you know, right in good enough shape to do that. He served as Treasury Secretary, served as Secretary of the War, Minister to France. Like on an experience basis, I am kind of inclined to give it to Crawford over Nader. I am too. And I feel like Nader, like... <laughs> It, this we if you know who knows if we live in a universe where Nader is popular enough to become president maybe there is a green wave and, and <laughs> they're all of a sudden like members of the Green Party in both houses of Congress but assuming there isn't then he is going to face lots of opposition from both sides of the house right. for a lot of his ideas and it'll be just like a very ineffective presidency Crawford at least could govern yeah yeah I I think I think I'd have to go with Crawford too okay Crawford moves on. You know, we're viewing him within the context of his time. All right. Our next matchup is two 15 seeds. We have William Howard Taft, a, uh, a former president who lost re-election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have... John Bell. A Tennessee politician. So let's talk about Taft. He's one of only two sitting presidents who are in our planes because he got third place in his election. He, as sitting president, that is so embarrassing. He was a Republican who lost re-election in 1912. Uh, He faced a challenge from his presidential predecessor, Teddy Roosevelt, and Democrat Woodrow Wilson. Basically what happened is Taft and Teddy split the vote. Taft got third place. He only got 23%, uh, and Teddy got like 24%. So Wilson Mm -hmm. won, you know, not an outright necessary majority but he won like all the states because they split against each other taft he liked tariffs 
He believed all monopolies needed to be destroyed. He was really just a... It's it's weird to describe him as like slightly more intense Teddy Roosevelt because I, I feel like Teddy Roosevelt has most of the intensity. It's just like Taft like was way more like trust busty and I, I don't know, kind of more dedicated to like doing the work of the cause as opposed to like raging for the cause. Does that make sense? Is that, is that fair? Um, I think so. He, he I, I think, had some... He... Yeah, I think there are probably some people who thought he didn't go quite as far enough, which is probably why Roosevelt ran. Yeah, um, but, like, he, he busted more trust than Roosevelt. Roosevelt was true. president for much longer and did not... I mean, Taft busted more tr- trust in four years than Roosevelt did in seven. That's true. Anyway, that's that's former President William Howard Taft. I know, There were some, like, loose corruption scandals in that time, too, but I pretty sure that's par for the core for like every politician from 1910 mm-hmm. to like 1930 that's taft tell us about bell yeah so john bell as he said was a politician from tennessee uh he was a senator for a while and briefly secretary of war and briefly speaker of the house he ran uh as the constitutional union party's nominee in the 1860 presidential election which we've already talked about breckenridge he came in third place um, he won 12.6% of the vote in three states, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia, which gave him 39 votes. So uh, John Bell's whole thing was that he had he basically thought that the Republicans were too anti-slavery and the Democrats were too pro-secession. <laughs> so he wanted to form the Constitutional Union Party, which was a, a sort of moderate party, if you will. His whole thing was that he wanted to... I mean, his so his stated... <laughs> Um, goal was to avoid secession, to recognize no political principle other than the constitution of the country, the union of the states, and the enforcement of laws, which is very vague. Yeah, he really <laughs> just wanted to like keep things status quo. Yes, and like his his coalition was mainly former Whigs who had thought the Republicans were too anti-slavery, and also former Know Nothings um, who who were kind of politically homeless after the dissolution of that party. <laughs> Why would and, they call themselves that? By the way. It's well. It, it it was slang because like they were initially like organized in secret, and when somebody asked if they knew anything about the party, they would say, "I know nothing." I, I know, but it um, sounds. Mm. Yes, they sound. <laughs> it doesn't dumb. sound as good um, in practice. Yes, basically, he tried to like ignore that slavery was an issue, and just like wanted everybody to to get along. He was described. Yeah, he 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 was described by the Nashville Union, uh, which was a, a newspaper in Nashville, as nobody's man who stands on nobody's platform uh and after uh lincoln's election and the battle of fort sumter he defected to the confederate well he 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 tried to he he tried to convince he became pro-secession because he didn't want lincoln to use force to keep the union together well then why secede i don't know how i don't know how he assumed he was going to keep the union together without force considering he ran on keeping the union together in the first place and and basically like alienated all of his friends in the process who were like come on man i thought you were a unionist so yeah yeah that was that was john bell i i i think we kind of have to give it to taft (laughs) yeah i agree i i you know I, i appreciate that bell he he was once an ally of like andrew jackson and then he uh like became like very anti Andrew Jackson, which is cool. You know, he like mm. basically burned all these bridges and got this like nickname, the Great Apostate, and like spent his like political career like <laughs> bullying Jackson's people. That mm-hmm. entertains me as someone who doesn't like Andrew Jackson. But I mean, <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you that this guy who left the Union should beat Howard Taft, a former president who, I, I guess Taft's worst folly was that he was inoffensive. Like, well, I, and he just seemed I, it's, much more boring than Roosevelt. Well, and I there there are also things with like tariffs, and he was like even though he was more of a trust buster, he was in many ways more pro like industry than Roosevelt was. Mm. Um, but I also, but I you know, he at least had principles and was like effective in some ways, whereas John Bell seems like incredibly wishy washy. And, like, he has pretty much no conviction, so... Yeah. All right, let's give yeah, it a shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think it's... I don't think it's much of a contest, actually. <laughs> All right, that has been the uh, our first set of playing games, and now we're going to stop for this quick commercial break. 
If you're enjoying Floor Fight, be sure to check out the podcast that started it all, Running Mates. It's the podcast where Mike and I went through every modern presidential election through the lens of vice presidential picks. Not only that, but we made our case for who would have been a better pick each cycle and where and how vice presidential picks could make a difference each election. Could Hillary Clinton have won in 2016 if she picked a different running mate? Could Al Gore have won in 2000 if he picked a different running mate? That's the premise of Running Mates, which you can find on thepostwriter.com or everywhere podcasts are found. Subscribe and run through every election from 1968 to 2020 with an emphasis on that second name on the ticket. All right, we're back now for the playing round of our first season floor fight where we were trying to figure out who the best president we never had was, who amongst the losing candidates would have been the best president. Let's get to our next round, Mike. Uh, yeah. We have two 16 seeds. We have Hugh Lawson White versus John B. Anderson. Tell us about White. Yeah, so Hugh Lawson White was, uh, we were talking about Andrew Jackson a lot so far. He was a very staunch, well, initially was a very staunch Andrew Jackson ally. He was a senator from Tennessee. He was actually president pro Tem. Um, but he ran against Jackson's handpicked successor, Martin Van Buren, in the 1836 United States presidential election when White defected to the Whig party. Um, so this was a very odd election year where the Whigs were really just kind of coming into their own and were still very sort of like divided regionally and couldn't all decide on one candidate. There was no like convention where they convened to select a candidate. So like a bunch of just regional chapters and like state uh, legislatures basically nominated people. So Hugh White was one of them hmm. and he... Came in third place between Van Buren and William Henry Harrison, and uh, he won 9.7% of the popular vote in uh, two states. He won Tennessee and Georgia, which gave him 26 electoral votes. So Hugh L. White's whole deal was that he considered himself a strict constructionist in the vein of Jefferson and, I guess, Jackson. And, you know, he, he was very much aligned with Andrew Jackson in the sense that he was against a national bank. Um, he was against tariffs. He was against internal improvements, which was basically infrastructure funding. Um, and he actually helped hammer through the Indian Removal Act, <laughs> of course, Jackson's most lasting achievement, um, which relocated Native Americans and killed a lot of them in the process, unfortunately. But where he broke with Jackson's when Jackson actually started to endorse certain tariffs um, that were very unpopular in the South. White thought that it was okay for the, the, the government to pass tariffs as long as they benefit the entire country, but the perception was that these tariffs were hurting the South but benefiting the North because they were tariffs on imported goods uh, from Europe, you know, and their equivalents being made in the North. So, yeah, he was endorsed by the Tennessee state legislator for president. He ran as a Whig. He was primarily attracted the, uh, the Southern Whigs, uh, obviously, because he won in Tennessee and Georgia. And, yeah, this was basically just a, a kind of a spiteful run against Andrew Jackson, against his old friend. He didn't like that Jackson handpicked Van Buren as his successor. He thought that was sort of like the first step towards monarchy. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's him. <laughs> that's white. <laughs> yeah, so I've got John B. Anderson. Uh, he ran in 1980. He was a Republican congressman from Illinois who turned independent. Uh, and he ran in the 1980 election as an independent uh, against President Carter and Republican candidate Ronald Reagan. He tried to run in the GOP primary. It uh, didn't go very far. Reagan won that primary. And Anderson got like 6.5% of the presidential vote in 1980, which is like pretty, it's a pretty good chunk. Uh, Reagan, of course, won. But Anderson's whole deal is he supported like raising the gas tax and cutting other taxes uh he appealed basically he appealed to rockefeller republican types those mm -hmm. who were like intellectuals and more liberal uh you know uh your college educated type your college student types uh fiscally conservative types us he appealed to people like <laughs> us like i'm just gonna i'm just gonna come out and say yeah. it. um yeah he he was just very like that that kind of guy he's a very uh I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a modern I feel like example. He, he's, he's almost like if Bill Weld was like more successful in 2020, I yeah. feel like he's John Anderson. Yeah, but John Anderson has this like aloof of intellectualism or something. Yes. I don't, I don't yes. know. 
So uh, that's John Anderson. How uh, how do we want to pit these against each other? <laughs> so I mean, my thing with Fuel White is that like he doesn't really seem to have a whole lot of ideas. <laughs> he seems like he's like I want to do everything Jackson was doing, but I don't want Jackson to do it. And also like the tariff issue. Whereas I I kind of respect Anderson for trying to, one could argue, uh, trying to sort of like uh, keep together the sort of like liberal order of the New Deal era, mm. albeit with a more conservative bent, um, but not as conservative as Reagan. So I, I'm tempted to go Anderson here. Yeah, I, I think I am too. Yeah, I mean, I definitely am. I, Anderson is just way more, like, he just offers such a different path for the, like, he is not the best vector for that channel of the Republican Party or that path it could have taken in the late 70s uh, and 80s that Mike is so fond of talking about. But um, what could have been? Yeah. I think Anderson would have made a better president. Oh, for yes. sure. That, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm good with that. Let's give it to Anderson. And let's move down to our next 15 seeds. This is, we've got Perot again, but this time it's Perot in 92. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have everyone's favorite, George Wallace. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us about Perot first? <laughs> right, so we already touched on his biographies from Texas. He's a billionaire. Um, so very interesting. He kind of, his first sort of foray into politics is that he was very opposed to the Persian Gulf War and NATO. He was very much a non-interventionist. He was very critical of George H.W. Bush's foreign policies. He um, really is just Trump before Trump. He is, Um but probably less racist. Not that that takes a whole he, lot. His whole but. NAFTA thing was his NAFTA spiel. Mm. Yeah. Um, at least he didn't, you know, uh, say the things Trump said about certain groups of people. Well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he, he ran as an independent in a very sort of a topsy-turvy uh, uh, manner in that he announced his candidacy on Larry King and then uh, was actually leading both Clinton and Bush in early polls. But then he ran, like, a very sort of just, like, poor campaign operation. Like, he had uh, advisors from both parties on it, and he, like, made people swear loyalty oaths and <laughs> basically ignored everybody's uh, advice and stuff. Um, so he, he pulled out for a little bit, but then he jumped back in. Oh, no, actually was involved in the, the debates, the presidential debates. And, yeah, like we said, he was a populist. He was for a balanced budget. He was for gun control, actually. Hmm. He wanted to end outsourcing and he was also for, like, uh, electronic t- direct democracy. Like, he wanted electronic town halls, basically. He seems very ahead of its time, actually. Yes. Uh, he he got he kind of, like, got around uh, advertising issues by just buying 30-minute blocks of television and basically having infomercials of him sort of pointing at, like, charts and maps and graphs talking about the economy. He was very much a, uh, a, a sort of, like... Um, he was, certainly was not originalist. He said that keeping the Constitution frozen in time won't hack it. He really was, you know, wanted transformational change. He warned if the giant sucking sound of jobs leaving the country if NAFTA was passed. And I, I forgot to mention the top, but he came in third place <laughs> behind yeah. Clinton and Bush. Won no states, so no electoral votes. But he did win 18.9% of the vote, which was the best third party showing since Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. Huh. Good for him. And he had all those cute little slideshows and graphs and stuff yeah so uh george wallace he uh he was the governor of alabama and he ran for president in this specific instance in the 1968 election he was a segregationist a populist and a horrible person he (laughs) is the guy who famously said segregation now segregation tomorrow segregation forever uh but he ran in 1968 as an an american independent party candidate against hubert humphrey and richard nixon nixon won wallace got 13.5 percent of the vote and won five states this is actually the last time that a third party candidate carries a single state outright god i if there's like a, a seed below 16, like if there is a lowest possible of lowest seeds, he is it. He is a terrible guy. It isn't. And this is, yes, he was governor. <laughs> he had the experience for public office. That's what's like almost more terrifying about him is, God, I prefer Perot bumble his way into the Oval Office than George Wallace gets in there. That's scary, man. <laughs> I do too. If you ever want to just like scare yourself really bad, uh, watch... 
I don't really know how you're going to find it. But basically, they're during, you know, 1968, obviously, you know, very infamous for a lot of the riots and civil unrest that was going on at the time. And uh, there was this video clip that was being passed around in 2020 of people who were seeking the Republican nomination and George Wallace being interviewed about the issues. And uh, it was George Wallace, Ronald Reagan, uh, George Romney, and Richard Nixon. And uh, Wallace is the one that sounds the most like Trump. <laughs> like, mm. it is actually kind of terrifying how similar they sound. But yeah, Wallace, obviously, uh, bad. Not not a good guy. Um, bad guy. I think, you know, I don't love Perot, but I think he definitely wins this one. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. George, we, I was talking with Mike uh, off the air when we were doing our research for this, but George Wallace was also... Uh, governor of Alabama until 1987, which feels very recent. He was, like, basically king of Alabama. Like, it's... Well, and his wife was, like, governor, and he, like, yeah, very yeah. weird. Mm-hmm. Weird, weird bad guy. But now he's gone. He's out of the bracket. All right, in our next round, we have a couple of 16 seeds. We have Van Buren in 48. That's 1848. And we have Gary Johnson who you may recall from recent history. Tell us about Van Buren in 48, Mike. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, Martin Van Buren, he was the eighth president of the United States, but uh, by this point, he had not been president for quite a while in 1848. In fact, he hadn't been president for like seven years. He ran as a member of the Free Soil Party for president. He came in third place behind Zachary Taylor and Lewis Cass. Um, he won 10.1% of the vote, but no states or electoral votes. So Van Buren's whole thing at this point uh, was that he tried to get back. Van Buren basically kind of like founded in a lot of ways, like the, the Democratic Party. And it was like the party's major power broker for a long time. It was like, you know, they called him the little magician, right? He was very good at getting things done and getting what he wanted. But they passed him up for the nomination in uh, 1848. So instead, he kind of got together with um, lots of folks who were basically anti-slavery, at the very least anti-expanding slavery to the new territories, and became their standard bearer. He argued that the government could, in fact, eliminate slavery, and that actually that's what the founders had intended. They yeah. wanted to, to gradually uh, be repealed. And so he, yeah, he attracted anti-slavery Democrats, uh, anti-slavery Whigs, and members of the Liberty Party, which were an even more sort of extreme abolitionist party, is for the Wilmot Proviso, which would prevent um, expanding slavery into territories. And he basically, you know, kind of like Hugh L. White, he, he, he was, there was some petty motivation behind this. He really hated Lewis Cass, and he hated the policy of popular sovereignty, which stated that it should be the uh, residents of a territory to decide whether or not slavery should be, exist. Mm. And he really ran just because he didn't want Cass to win and thought that his presence on the ballot would split the Democratic vote. And in fact, there was lots of skepticism from people that he even actually had these anti-slavery convictions in the first place and was just doing this to get back at Cass. Yeah, I, super smart guy too i mean i remember i took this class in college on like the presidency and they were like van buren like just like was very ahead of his time in like politics and kind of understanding how american government could function better um but we're pitting him against gary johnson so gary johnson was the former governor of new mexico he ran as the libertarian uh nominee in 2016 for president he was an alternative to two basically historically disliked major party candidates in the race and he was pro-drug legalization, he was pro-balanced budget, he was non-interventionist. Um, he was like, I kind of think of him as like more or less, and I, Weld, who we mentioned last round, um, is more like this, but it's like, he's like kind of the least annoying a libertarian can be. It's like libertarians yeah. are so annoying. They may like, I may like agree with them on like 80% of things, but they are so annoying about it. Well, there's that very famous video of the debate at the uh, oh, yeah. Libertarian Convention where they're arguing if uh, there should be driver's licenses. Oh, yeah. And he's the only one who says yes. Right. It's like, <laughs> and he gets booed for it. Right. And the one guy's like, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. What's next? I need a license to make toast with my own toaster. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, so he was like the least annoying a libertarian can be, but he was like remarkably ill-equipped on any foreign policy question he faced. He yes. like was not prepared f- to be president 
in that sense. Well, um, yes, there was that famous interview where somebody asked him about Aleppo, the city in Syria, and he said, "What's Aleppo?" Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, he also there was like a reporter who was like, "Do you know who the dictator of North Korea is?" And he was like, "Yes," and just like kept going. <laughs> He, of course, got third place in that election. Uh, he got 3% of the vote, which was the most for any third party since Perot in 96. But he lost the popular vote to Clinton and then Trump in that order. But Trump, uh, the Donald Trump, won the presidency. So who would make the better president? Gary Johnson? Van Buren? I think I got to go with Martin Van Buren. He was already president. You know, who knows how deeply in his heart he felt about slavery but the fact that he was willing to run on that platform and there would presumably be people who were keeping accountable those promises i think would have been a positive thing in 1848 so right i I appreciate the kind of uh evolution of his political career yeah but uh you don't get president trump if you have president gary johnson (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is true. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think, like, would Gary Johnson... Because it's not enough to say, like, oh, Trump was not a good president. But is it? would Gary Johnson have been a bad president? Uh, I, I feel like I, he would have been... <laughs> is it mean to say he would have been Gerald Ford but dumber? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is mean. Like, I just see... I, I'm just, like, he would just... Like, I'm just imagining the way he'd be presented on, like, Saturday Night Live... Yeah. I see him as just kind of, like, bumbling in a way. The the foreign policy stuff is scary. I guess you are right about Van Buren in that sense. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, there's an argument that we probably would have much more progressive drug policy if he were president. That's, yeah, that's true, though. Um, War in Afghanistan probably would have ended earlier, if we assume that's a good thing. I don't know. It's it's more of, like, how much does the foreign policy stuff really scare me? I I honestly think I'm going to go with Van Buren. I, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay. okay with that. Because now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, think about the things Johnson would face. Oh, God. Right? <laughs> J- Gary Johnson and COVID. Gary Johnson, I, like, I, Black I don't Lives think Matter. I, <laughs> oh I don't God. think any of those things would go very well. Yeah. Uh, Van Buren can take that one. We'll, we'll hmm. <laughs> give it to him. All right, let's do our last matchup in the play-ins to determine the full bracket. So this is another couple of 15 seeds. We have Millard Fillmore. And Henry Clay in 1824. Uh, what you know about Fillmore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Millard Fillmore, another former president. Yes. <laughs> so another former president. He was never actually elected to the presidency. He ascended upon the death of Zachary Taylor. And uh, yeah, so he was a Democrat, but he ran in this party as a know-nothing or a member of the American Party, as they were formerly known. And he actually did win one state. He won Maryland, hmm. um, where which was like a hotbed of know-nothing activity, uh, which was good enough for eight electoral votes. He won 21.5% of the popular vote. He came in third behind James Buchanan and John C. Vermont. So 1856 was the first election in which the Republicans ran a candidate. And the Know-Nothing Party, which began as this nativist anti-immigrant organization, they were particularly hostile to Catholic immigrants. Um, oh, sorry, Mike. Uh, yeah, I know. Have you ever seen Gangs of New York? That's, you know, th- think about Bill the Butcher. Um, but <laughs> that <laughs> was your... Millard Fillmore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, well, it actually was not. <laughs> no. I... Um, so this party kind of became, basically became a place for Whigs who thought the Republicans were too radical and who still did not like the Democratic policies on slavery in the Union. It became a place for all of them to migrate um, after the dissolution of their party. And that's basically how Millard Fillmore got nominated. He was actually not in the country when he was nominated. He was traveling in Europe. And basically, it was kind of like a personal favor. A bunch of his friends put his name in nomination, and he got it. Um, (laughs) That's that's how I got nominated for prom king, Mike. (laughs) Yes, it is a true story. Interesting. Uh, That's that's another podcast, though. (laughs) It was the best prom king we never had. It was me! (laughs) Yeah, so he basically was not unlike John Bell in that he wanted to form a truly national party which shall ignore this constant and distracting agitation of slavery. So he was kind of another guy who wanted uh, compromise and basically, uh, you know, 
neglect when it came to the slavery issue and what that that was really his sort of animated thing he wanted to really keep the country together and not have a divide which uh and, and to avoid sort of sectarian conflict but uh that was 1856 that was kind of inevitable so yeah, yeah. the writing was on the wall there yeah so henry clay uh this is a name we will be hearing a lot throughout this podcast because <laughs> he, he lost a lot ran a lot and he <laughs> lost a lot but he was like arguably the most important american politician of the 19th century i think you could make oh, yeah. that argument um mm-hmm. But this iteration specifically of 1824 Henry Clay, uh, he was Speaker of the House. He was a Kentuckian. Uh, he was a Democratic Republican at the time, like everyone. Uh, this was that same race uh, in which William Crawford, who we talked about a few rounds ago, uh, ran. Clay got 13% of the vote in this race, and he stood for kind of this 19th century uh, version of the Hamiltonian ideal for America, right? The American system. He wanted a strong central bank. Uh, he wanted infrastructure to build roads into the West. Uh, he wanted tariffs to protect kind of the nascent American uh, industrial development. He owned slaves, but he was opposed to slavery. He was kind of like a slavery gradualist, which in the 1820s is like, I guess, like better than most in the country. He was at least like saying things about it. Uh, he was He was more like fight the fights you can win, right? Like we're not going to ban it tomorrow, but we can like try and stop it in other states that we admit into the union um but he lost the election of 1824 but he got nominated to be quincy adams's secretary of state after clay as speaker of the house kind of swung the house vote towards making adams president in the contingent election after no one got a majority and this was dubbed the corrupt bargain so did clay deserve to win in 1824 Mm-hmm. But did he deserve to win over Fillmore? <laughs> I am going to say yes. Yeah, I think so too. <clears throat> Clay is like I'm. I'm. I think if I were alive in the 1820s, I'd, I'd be a pretty Henry Clay. Seems like the kind of guy I'd be to, be into in the 18 1800s. Yeah, I think so. I, I think his platform is kind of appealing in in just sort of this robust federal government type of way. And also, I, I just don't know that I want the know-nothings at, at, the, at the levers of power. <laughs> right. <laughs> that seems like, like a bad situation. That is that is true. I will I will note, I just found this interesting while researching him, is like there's this poll of historians, and they ranked Clay as the most qualified, unsuccessful major party presidential candidate. The We'll talk about another one of the names they named, but they put like Hamilton in there and John C. Calhoun... And the other one was William Jennings Bryan, who, like, made this this top four. Mm-hmm. But, like, Clay was, like, this big, big deal. Um, and, yeah. yeah, and he was against Andrew Jackson. What am I... Who am I kidding? Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be Clay. Clay in... Out of the play ends, and he is done. And we are done with our play-ins. Yeah, that does, in fact, conclude our play-in round and our first eight matches. So we've gone from 72 candidates down to 64. And we're ready for the real matchups to begin next episode. So, were, were any of these results surprising to you, Lars? I the only one that I think really caught me off guard was the Crawford v. Nader race. Mm. Um, is that, that's one I thought could have gone the other way. I think we made a pretty compelling case for why Crawford, despite his flaws, was like more qualified to be president at the time compared to Nader. Yeah. Uh, that is the only one of these play. Like, did, did I think Wallace had a chance in hell? No. Did I think, <laughs> I don't know, Anderson was going to lose to White? No. I don't know. Well, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I think I agree. I don't know that I'm too shocked by a lot of what we chose. I mean, there were some pretty easy picks, I think. Van Buren Johnson's interesting. It's like, I feel like we're both like post-war guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like literally, that's, 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 that's when we're alive. <laughs> we and are. also... That's where our, our expertise, if we have any, have any lies. Right. Um, and so I was thinking, like, are we going to have this kind of unconscious bias towards more recent politicians? But I think we <laughs> no. convinced ourselves in that instance that uh, to take Van Buren over Johnson, I think, is, is a good sign for the fairness of this competition going forward. Yes, I, I, I agree. And I think we made a pretty good case for, for both of them. We gave Johnson the benefit of the doubt, but... 
Yeah, I mean, Johnson facing COVID would have been something <laughs> else. That would have been interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about that now. It's like, does he... Just just think about, like, how the Libertarian Party would react to Johnson trying to, like, pass a vaccine mandate. Right. And, like, I, I'm, I'm inclined to think Johnson would, too. Like, I actually think he'd yeah. be, like, a pretty... I don't think he'd be, like, a good pandemic administrator. But I think he'd probably be more, like, more serious about it than the administration that handled mm-hmm. it at the beginning. Um, and he'd be like, look, guys, like, we should probably be wearing face masks. Mm-hmm. Which seems so repulsive to the libertarian idea ideology, but he's kind of like, a, I mean, he was elected governor of New Mexico. He's like a real guy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. He's governed before. Elected as a Republican, we should know. But yes, yes. And he issued like more vetoes in his term than every, all of the forty nine other governors combined. But hmm. whatever. Okay. Uh, so any in in that same, in a similar vein, any. Any upcoming matches you're particularly excited for? So we've got round... Our first round is going to be big. we got a lot of names to fly through. Um, I, I'm, so I'm looking specifically like who these planes are going to be up against. Um, we could have had Nader versus Gore, but we're actually going to have Crawford versus Gore. <laughs> um, I think Taft v. Uh, John Kerry could be interesting. I see Clay in 24 going pretty far. He's up against Blaine, uh, who's a number two seed. And it'll be interesting to watch Anderson, too. Yeah. I, I actually think John Anderson could go pretty far. The problem is he's up against Nixon uh, in 1960. Yes. So it'll be Nixon v. Anderson next round, and that will be quite a debate. What do you think? Yeah, no, I was also thinking about that. I think that's a possible upset. I don't know if it will happen, but it's certainly yeah. possible. Yes. Um, Theodore Roosevelt is a 14 seed. I think it'll be interesting to see where he goes, because I think he has like a very complicated legacy. And do we think the good outweighs the bad? Who knows? I think John Quincy Adams versus Bob Dole is very interesting. Yes. And that is just like two big names going at it. I'm just curious what we're going to make of William Jennings Bryan. Mm. Um, There's another silver guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. He he would not be crucified on a cross of gold. Um, Wendell Wilkie versus Jimmy Carter could be very interesting. Yeah, um, you know, I think I think a name to watch is Hubert Humphrey. I, I I could see him making a bit of a run, and yeah, I think that's I think that's kind of it. Yeah, we've got we've got everyone, <laughs> everyone who ever got second place in a presidential election. You, they will be in round one. Well, there you have it. So you'll have to stay tuned to find out who does in fact end up winning. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found, or, of course, you can find it on thepostrider.com. You can also stay tuned with our live updating bracket at thepostrider.com slash floor fight to see how each candidate fared as we whittle them down over the course of the series. You can tweet at us at thepostrider or email us at contact at thepostrider.com to let us know what picks you would have made, where we made a mistake, and the tremendous injustice we committed against your favorite candidate. Also, we'll see you next time for the round of 64 when the real games begin on Floor Fight.